the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show and live from Seattle. I'm Georgine Rice, your host, and today we're going to talk with Jill Eileen Smith. She's the author of She Walked Before Us, Grace, Courage, and Strength from 12 Women of the Old Testament. Fascinating stories that are fleshed out of these women whose names you might be familiar with, but whose stories you've probably spent very little time thinking about. That's coming up later this hour. Also, we're going to try to bring you up to date on the status of the election. The president, of course, is yet to concede the 2020 race, but he secretly told aides that he wants to run in 2024. We'll talk about that and other headlines uh, in the next couple of hours. So President Trump told his advisors that he wants to run again in four years and could potentially announce his bid before or even during the inauguration on the 20th of January. That's according to Fox News chief White House correspondent John Roberts, who confirmed a report from the Daily Beast. Well, the president um, has publicly challenged the election results, told reporters last week that he doesn't want to talk um, about 2024 yet. But that announcement or even Trump's flirtation with the third White House run would put a damper on what was thought to be a pretty wide open battle for the GOP in the 2024 presidential nomination. And it could potentially freeze out early moves by other Republicans with national aspirations. So just uh, another element in this ongoing yet to be decided uh, process. Uh, meanwhile, with regard to challenges, Pennsylvania lawmakers formally introduced a resolution to dispute the 2020 election results. These are Republican lawmakers in Pennsylvania. Yesterday, they introduced that resolution to dispute the results. Uh, on the same day that Arizona certified the former Vice President uh, Joe Biden as the winner of the state's 11 electoral votes, state lawmakers there, they held a fact-finding meeting on Monday on allegations of voter fraud that might have tilted the closely contested state. Well, Biden appears to have won the traditionally Republican-leaning state by just over 10,000 votes. And while that may sound like a lot in a statewide election, not so much. Witnesses told uh, state lawmakers that mail-in voting fraud and problems with the Dominion voting systems machines could have skewed the results. Dominion has vigorously defended its machine, stating on its website, according to a joint statement by the federal government agency that oversees U.S. election security, the Department of Homeland Security, cybersecurity and infrastructure, there is no evidence that any voting systems deleted or lost votes, changed votes, or was in any way compromised. Then uh, in Maricopa County, GOP Chairman Linda Brickman uh, on, uh, well, yesterday, in fact, testified before members of the Arizona State Legislature that she personally observed votes for President Donald Trump being tallied as votes for Democratic President nominee Joe Biden, when input into the Dominion machines. Now, she's uh, the GOP head of one of the country's largest counties and a veteran county elections worker. She submitted her testimony in a sworn affidavit under penalty of perjury. She testified that she and her Democratic partner witnessed more than once Trump votes default and shipped to Biden when they were entering votes into the Dominion machines from ballots that couldn't be read 
by the machines. And the Trump campaign filed a lawsuit to the Wisconsin Supreme Court today, alleging abuse around the process of absentee voting in the state, which they say affected approximately 220,000 ballots. The lawsuit was filed uh, this morning, comes after Wisconsin completed its partial recount that maintained that Joe Biden won the presidential race in the state and after Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers formally certified his victory on Monday night. Well, the Trump campaign's Wisconsin legal team, led by former Wisconsin Circuit Court Judge Jim Tropas, says that while the recount in the state didn't flip in uh, President Trump's favor, it gave the campaign the unique ability to examine ballots. And then a contractor for Dominion Voting System who performed IT work at the TCF Center in Michigan and a former state senator who was a poll challenger um, both say that the voting machine used in the November 3rd election was connected to the Internet. Now, this is in Detroit. Melissa Carone, a freelance IT worker who submitted a sworn affidavit on the 10th of November, detailing a barrage of what she called fraudulent actions during her time at the voting center, said she was called into a hotel in Allen Park on the 2nd of November, where the whole Dominion team was staying in order to attend a training of sorts. In that hotel conference room, she says, there was a tabulator and an adjudication machine the team was told to walk around the room and look at. She said a Dominion manager, the man who initially contacted her for the position, talked for around an hour telling the team where they were uh, going to be assigned for the election. They gave us a binder that they told us uh, to go through, which actually was uh, very beneficial to me and a lot of uh, attorneys because it gave a lot of information regarding their software and image cast and so on. Well, in the bottom right-hand corner, the computers used to tabulate the and adjudicate ballots Uh, There is a Wi-Fi signal, but it doesn't show if the machines were connected to the World Wide Web or if they were just connected to a network, she said. Unless a mouse hovers over it, she wasn't allowed access to it. In the manual that they uh, provided me with, uh, it says... Uh, to make sure that every tabulating machine is connected via Ethernet cable. In other words, she and others are suggesting that the Dominion contractor voting machines in Detroit were connected to the Internet and therefore could be subject to change. So the battle continues and is uh, not going to be resolved anytime soon. Meanwhile, Marco Rubio, defeated in his 2016 presidential bid, says that Donald Trump would be the front runner in 2024 if he chose to run. Lindsey Graham encouraged Trump to mount presidential bid uh, in a 2024 election um, if he should fall short this time around. And Mick Mulvaney says Trump is likely to run again in 2024 if he loses. Mitch McConnell blasted the Democrats for accepting a Biden win after questioning the validity of the 2016 election. And Laura Ingram says that win or lose, Trump will be the GOP. GOP kingmaker for 2022 and 2024, no doubt. Chuck Schumer calls out the GOP for standing by Donald Trump. And that's pretty much the landscape in Washington until the election is certified. The Electoral College uh, casts its ballots. And this is ultimately decided. Meanwhile, some Black Lives Matter chapters are revolting against the organized movement's national arm. They're accusing leaders of providing little financial transparency and not much in the way of financial support. Well, 10 local chapters issued a statement uh, yesterday outlining concerns regarding financial disclosures, decision-making, accountability since the establishment of BLM Global Network Foundation. In June, the Daily Caller reported that BLM Global Network spent millions between July of 2017 and June of 2019 on consultants and staff compensation. Specifically, it spent about $900,000 on travel, $1.6 million on consulting, and $2.1 million on staff during the 2017 2018, and 2019 fiscal years. Locals aren't so happy.
While in other developments, BLM supporters continue to protest Biden's consideration of L.A. Mayor Garcetti for the cabinet. And BLM's co-founder is sending a message to Biden. We want something for our vote. And Rob Smith says Black Lives Matter doesn't really care about black lives lost unless uh, the group can blame the police. Well, the same depraved media mob who refused to accept the results of the 2016 election are attacking President Trump and his supporters for questioning irregularities and investigating voter fraud allegations, Sean Hannity said on Monday. We, frankly, don't need lectures about truth, about integrity from what is a depraved group of donors, the media mob and Democrats uh, that never accepted the results of the 2016 election, Hannity, the host, said. Well, the primetime host reminded viewers that President-elect Joe Biden was shielded by the mainstream media who enabled him to hide from the coronavirus in his basement for most of the campaign. By contrast, he went on the same group where Biden attacked dogs and did the bludgeoning of Trump for him. They are meaningless to the rest of us. You dragged this country through, well, heck, he said. You did it again with your Ukrainian impeachment witch hunt, and you totally ignored and protected the real quid pro quo, end quote. Well, National Review is ripping Trump's post-election disgraceful endgame, as they refer to it. And Glenn Greenwald is pointing out that Trump's uh, hint of a peaceful White House exit negates the, uh, the media's false hysteria. Chris Hayes, in the meantime, is now being haunted by a 2016 fun fact when the MSNBC host suggested at that time electors abandon POTUS elect. Now, that uh, story has changed significantly this time around. Meanwhile, Joe Manchin is firing back at AOC, saying she's more active on Twitter than she is anywhere else. And a L.A. County supervisor has visited a restaurant after voting for an outdoor dining ban that he didn't see applying to himself. So there are exceptions. There's an asterisk to these bans that the rest of us have to comply with. If you happen to be a person of influence or political power, if you happen to have a, a woke attitude about a particular subject and you want to engage in um, protests, then somehow science bends on your behalf and you're less vulnerable than the rest of us. We're simply working from home or trying to stay socially distanced. Meanwhile, Houston police are investigating after a missing influencer is found dead on the side of the road. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show and live from Seattle. We need to take a quick break, so we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show in Portland and live from Seattle as I'm sitting in for KGNW 820 The Word. We're winding our way through some of the uh, the day's headlines. Also coming up, we'll talk with Jill Eileen Smith. She's the author of She Walked Before Us, Grace, Courage, and Strength from 12 Women of the Old Testament. While Mitch McConnell is cranking up the heat on Nancy Pelosi, saying there's no reason the coronavirus relief shouldn't pass by this year's end. And Zoom remains the coronavirus pandemic fixture, allowing folks to catch up. I know we spent some time on Zoom on Thanksgiving Day, connecting with family. ExxonMobil is stepping back from its plan to increase spending, and they're preparing to slash assets, um, book value. And a Los Angeles councilman is calling for the $46 million purchase of an apartment complex using CARES Act funds. Nike and Coca-Cola are still lobbying to weaken China's forced labor bill. And uh, police cut um, police cuts rather, uh, are leading to the highest homicide rate in Seattle in decades. And it's just the beginning as the mayor is seeking to cut more, I think $18 million. It's a scenario being played out in cities all across the country, including 
my own here in Portland. Arizona and Wisconsin have certified their election results. Biden is the certified winner in both. From another story, in Georgia, state officials announced a limited investigation into allegations of voter fraud, although they said it was very unlikely to overturn Mr. Biden's win there. According to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, uh, there are currently over 250 open cases from 2020, and we have 23 investigators to follow up on that. Some of these include a charge that Gwinnett County, that absentee ballots outnumbered absentee envelopes. This is the kind of specific charge that our office can investigate and ascertain the truth. Meanwhile, Chuck Schumer told donors the death of RGB killed Democrats' chances of taking the Senate. He also blamed Cal Cunningham, who couldn't keep his zipper up. Eric Erickson says, wait, what? The media assured us the rush to confirm ACB would sink the GOP. Well, lockdowns and shutdowns lead to a massive spike in suicides in Japan. The National Police Agency said suicides surged to 2,100 in October alone, with more than 17,000 people taking their own lives this year to date. CBS reported by comparison, fewer than 2,000 people in the country have died from COVID-19 in 2020. Well, Biden's choice for the head of the Office of Management and Budget is being criticized by both sides, with Senator John Cornyn saying that Neera Tandon uh, stands zero chance of being confirmed. She has spent much of her time since the announcement deleting tweets. Sanders is particularly upset with the Tandon pick, though progressives are generally pleased with most of Biden's choices. Meanwhile, from another story, Jen Psaki, uh, who has uh, named to serve as the president-elect Biden's White House press secretary, is facing fresh scrutiny over a photo that shows her wearing a Russian hat that bears the communist hammer and sickle logo. Meanwhile, the media excitement over Biden's all-female press team didn't seem to notice Trump's all-female press team over the last, what, seven years or, or four years? Well, after they were fined and stripped of their liquor license, a bar is fighting back against New York City, declaring itself an autonomous zone. Keith McClarney and Danny Presti, the owners of Max Public House in Staten Island, posted signs on the 20th of November labeling their business an autonomous zone and declaring that they refuse to abide by any rules and regulations put in place by Democrat New York City Mayor de Blasio or New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. Meanwhile, more hypocrisy as the L.A. County supervisor leading a smothering lockdown was caught dining at a restaurant after voting to ban such activities. And a California restaurant named their patio dining area after the restaurant where Gavin Newsom displayed his own vulgar hypocrisy. Canadian police blocked cars from attempting to attend a drive-in church. The pastor, who managed to preach over a loudspeaker to congregants and cars lined up on the adjacent street, called the move heartbreaking. Well, New York Democrats are facing accusations of fraud in a House race after a 28,000-vote lead on election night was erased by a judge and mail-in ballots. Arizona and Wisconsin certified Biden victories, and the Trump campaign has filed a Wisconsin lawsuit claiming abuse of the absentee voting, affecting 220 ballots. Republican Marionette Miller-Meeks wins her Iowa congressional seat by six votes, and Georgia's Secretary of State is investigating a Raphael Warnick-led voter registration group founded by Stacey Abrams, who has yet to concede defeat in her gubernatorial race. Biden named liberal and um, economic stagnation team and Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi proposed a Senate hold Biden's cabinet confirmation hearings before the inauguration. House Republicans formed a freedom force to counter AOC's squad 
And a tale of two headlines, uncertainty reigns in the Supreme Court during arguments on Trump's census memo, and conservative justices seem prepared to let Trump proceed with his immigrant census plan for now. We'll see what actually happens. Meanwhile, PolitiFact removed a false fact check after Candace Owens threatened legal action, and the media say Biden's female-led communications team is a first. (laughs) They apparently weren't paying attention. Russian collusion resurfaced. Photo shows Biden's press secretary wearing a hammer and sickle. And Moderna applies for emergency vaccine approval 10 days after Pfizer. Uh, Blood new... um, uh, test, uh, blood test, I should say, that's new, could predict who develops Alzheimer's. Well, when Democrats closed schools, blacks, Hispanics, and poor kids took the biggest hit. Biden plans to roll back the Trump-era education policies. And while he's proposed increases in education spending, he's likely to face challenges in Congress if Republicans keep control of the Senate. And that's uh, not yet decided. And with the Democratic majority in the House narrow, it likely will be easier for his administration to reinstate several civil rights guidelines that Betsy DeVos rescinded. Mr. Biden has also signaled that he would be less supportive of charter schools than past administrations, prompting concern among some groups that support uh, school choice policies. Under the uh, heading of national security, China is investigating a uh, massively in, or rather investing massively in new weapons, a NATO chief is warning, and Chinese chip maker SMIC and oil producer CNOOC added to their defense blacklist. CHICOMs uh, draft a stricter rule on foreigners' religious activities as well. Well, with an 11.8% gain in November, Dow books its best month since 1987, and holiday air travel surged despite health scaremongering. Well, Black Lives Matter faces revolt as local chapters allege power grab And Barack Obama, who owns multiple energy draining mansions, has criticized Americans for liking, in quote, cheap um, gas and big cars more than the environment. An L.A. County supervisor visited a restaurant after voting for an outdoor dining ban and a California diner. Uh, owner refused to close outdoor dining. A New York gym owner and Marine veteran tore up their $15,000 Corona fine on live TV. There's more to that story, I'm certain to come. And a Staten Island pub has declared itself an autonomous zone. Well, this day in history, 1824, the presidential election is turned over to the U.S. House of Representatives when a deadlock develops between John Quincy Adams, Andrew Jackson, William Crawford, and Henry Clay. Adams would end up the winner, but you probably already knew that. 1862, President Abraham Lincoln sends his second annual message to Congress in which he calls for the abolition of safe slavery and says, fellow citizens, we cannot escape history. We of this Congress and this administration will be remembered in spite of ourselves. 1942, during World War II, nationwide gasoline rationing goes into effect in the U.S. The goal is not so much to save on gas, but to conserve rubber as in tires desperately needed for the war effort. 1955, Rosa Parks, a black seamstress, is arrested after refusing to give up her seat to a white man on a Montgomery, Alabama city bus, an incident that would spark a year-long boycott of the buses and the civil rights movement. On this day in history, 1965, an airlift of refugees from Cuba to the United States begins in which thousands of Cubans were allowed to leave their homeland. 1969, the U.S. government holds its first draft lottery since World War II. 1989, Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev meets with Pope John Paul II at the Vatican. And finally, on this day in history, 1997, a 14-year-old boy opens fire on a prayer circle at Heath High School, in West Paducah, Kentucky, killing three fellow students and wounding five. The shooter is serving a life sentence.
Attorney General William Barr said Tuesday that the Justice Department has not found evidence of voter fraud widespread enough to change the outcome of this year's presidential election. To date, we have not seen fraud on a scale that could have affected a different outcome in the election, Barr said. And in other news from the Department of Justice, the Attorney General appointed U.S. Attorney John Durham as special counsel to continue investigating the origins of the Russia probe in the next administration. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show and live from Seattle. Up next, we'll have a conversation with Jill Eileen Smith, author of She Walked Before Us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I've been looking forward to the conversation I'm just about to engage in regarding a new book, She Walked Before Us, Grace, Courage, and Strength from 12 Women of the Old Testament. And I have to tell you, these are women whose names you may be less familiar with. To have their stories fleshed out is really very instructive and challenged me as a follower of Jesus and a woman to consider God's grace and his provision in very difficult times. Well, the truth is, in this life, we're going to all walk through loss and heartache and disappointment, but we don't do it alone. My next guest points out that God is with us every step of the way, just as he was with women in ancient times whose life struggles, their trials and triumphs are recorded in scripture. Her book is titled, She Walked Before Us, Grace, Courage, and Strength from 12 Women of the Old Testament. Jill Eileen Smith draws on her extensive research into women of the Old Testament and shows us how we can glean wisdom and strength from our trials, just as these women did. Well, Jill Eileen Smith is the best-selling and award-winning author of biblical fiction series, The Wives of King David, Wives of the Patriarchs, and Daughters of the Promised Land, and many, many others. Um, she, Her research into the lives of biblical women has taken her from the Bible to Israel, and she particularly enjoys learning how women lived in Old Testament times. She joins us today to talk about this very relevant new book, She Walked Before Us. Jill Eileen Smith, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you so much for inviting me. How difficult is it to um, to transition from writing fiction, that's historic fiction, it's based on what we know, and then writing about what the scriptures say specifically, which is in some cases very little, about the women that are featured in your latest book? Uh, actually, I thought, especially this book, because I did a previous nonfiction mm-hmm. with 12 other women, I thought this one would be easy. Um, because some of the women in the book, um, particularly the last Five of them all came from my very first novel series, The Wives of King David. And I'm like, no problem. I can do these women. This ought to be really easy to write. But when you start looking at their lives apart from what the fictional world you've created around all the other people that were in their life, it's very different if when you have to pick one theme that maybe they lived through to... Imagine what what was that like for them, and and what if you don't can't relate? You know, like in for, for instance, I look at uh, Abigail, and she every a lot of people know who she is. So um, she's looked at as this beautiful, wise woman who marries King David. But before that, her husband was pretty cruel, and we don't know was she abused. I explored that in my novel about her, but. We don't know. And so she had to, but we do know she lived with a very surly, angry man and had to learn to appease that kind of attitude in him. I haven't looked at that. And then you look at another of David's wives, two others, in fact, that one had his son, her son raped his uh, step, or not step, 
but half-sister. And then the other one murdered his brother. And you're like, well, wait a minute. I haven't lived through any of that either. How do I relate to these women? And it, it isn't easy. It's way easier to write fiction because <laughs> you can pour your emotions from other events in your life into the emotion they're feeling without having to have experienced it. But when you're going into nonfiction, you have to find relatable things that you've experienced or others you know have experienced that can say, hey, yeah, I, I've been where this woman was at, and this is how I've learned God can get me through it or walked me through it or taught me something as I walked through it. So well, it's I, I have to say... You succeeded at um, helping us <laughs> well, connect with the women whose experiences are so different from our own. Thank you. Now, most of us, when we're reading the scriptures about David, for example, because you do cover the lives of several of his wives, we read mm-hmm. the main character, which is David. We we hear mm-hmm. the names of these women. They're mentioned sort of as an afterthought or as a side note. But you focused in on the experiences of these women that I think help us to relate to not only them as characters, but the scriptures in general. Um, And I think that's very useful for us, especially as women, as we're trying to see God's hand at work, not just in the main character, David, but in those whose lives orbit around his, who are raising his children and are living through some very difficult uh, challenges. How did you pick the specific characters in this book following your very successful 2019 release, When Life Doesn't Match Your Dreams? How did you pick this 12 uh, to follow up on that nonfiction collection? Um, well, originally, this the whole idea for this book was a one book, not a two book. <laughs> <laughs> um, in 2016 or 15, some, I think it was 16, the year my first granddaughter was born, I proposed a, a one book nonfiction idea with 24 women or 25 women, whichever we chose, to my agent. I happened to be in California to meet my new granddaughter. So I met my agent who lives there too. And we talked about it and she really liked it. But Ravel said, we really like this, but we want two books, not one. <laughs> so I split the, my, the, my 25 became 24 and we split it in half. And that's how I ended up having these 12 in this book and 12 others in the other book. Um, how I separated them, I really don't know how that happened. I mean, I I can't go back and tell you I had a specific reason for why these 12 in this book and these 12 in that book. It just kind of fell into place that way. So I guess I kind of went a little bit in order um, Mm -hmm. of like the other book starts with Eve, you know, but this book starts with Miriam and kind of moves through um, chronologically, that may have been what I did. I'd have yeah. to look at when life doesn't match your dreams to know for sure. <laughs> Sorry, I don't have. No, that's in front that's of me. just fine. Now the book is structured, and we're going to talk about the characters specifically in a moment. But the book is structured mm-hmm. in a very unique way with storytelling. You have historical insight and questions for us to ponder. So you again, you kind of flesh out the experiences these women are having and how we can relate to them and what we can learn about. Uh, about God in the process of them walking through their their difficult circumstances. Talk a little bit about how the book is structured so that we do glean more than just, oh, this is so-and-so's wife and this is what happened. Mm-hmm. Well, I did the same type of setup, but a little different in the first book. Um, I, I'm a visual person. I mean, I can't write a book without seeing pictures of the faces of the characters I 
I write about, so I cast my characters like you would in a movie, only with pictures. But anyway, I, I like to see and, and be there. You know, I, I want I want to time travel and read the Bible by watching it. You know, it's at the same time of sticking with the truth of the scripture, but I want to see it happen. And God gives us words, not word pictures too much. Um, although he paints pretty good word pictures too mm-hmm. in scripture. But mm-hmm. and point being, um, because I'm visual, because I write fiction, I wanted to at least set the scene I do it twice. I put two scenes in each chapter that take you there because I would want to be taken there. I want to see it. I want to experience what they experience and what that might have done to them. Like, did they were were they able to forgive their oppressor as Hannah was with her sister wife Penina, or or were we just bitter to the end of our life as? Some of them could have been. We don't know for sure, but they were bitter people in scripture. So it's possible. But then I wanted to set the stage. The first book is more memoirish. So I kind of gave examples of life from either my or others' points of view that related. But in this book, since I couldn't relate to so many, I decided that my ed, my publisher and I decided that what we know about them um, could change instead of um, the other. There was a different phrase I used for the other book. But what we know, I decided I could explain, this is what the Bible says about her. It's all we have. And so we have to go from there and say, all right, she lived through the death of a child or she lived through the rape of a daughter, or she lived through abuse, or had to deal with anger, or she was uh, corrected by God for complaining too much. That was Miriam. Um, or she was called to lead a whole group of people like Deborah, and when no man, men were usually the leaders. She was the only woman called by God to be the prophet and the leader in her day. So I think it helped me to to show people that we have to be open to whatever God's calling us to do um, and obey him rather than grumble and complain like Miriam did. Um, But I wanted to show what we truly knew about them and then expand a little about what we can learn from what we know, because God put them there. He gave them names. Not every woman gets, gets a name. Um, but most of them did. And the ones that he immortalized that way, he had a reason for doing it. And what that reason is, we won't know till we meet him, you know, or maybe meet them and can find out for more details. I'm expecting that in eternity, at least I hope so. But, um, I just, that it's, it's set that way because I love to write, uh, biblical fiction and I wanted to incorporate the, this is where what it could have looked like, and, but this is what we really know, and this is what you can think about, and this is what, and then the questions are good for like Bible studies at the end or something to help you ponder a little further, you know, like how can I apply this to myself? So it's kind of turned out a little more devotional than maybe I expected it to, but um, I hope that women can use it 
for that purpose yeah. to maybe aid a Bible study or something like that. Yeah. Well, I certainly see that being one way to use it. We need to take a quick break, but we're going to continue our conversation with Jill Eileen Smith. Her latest book is titled, She Walked Before Us, Grace, Courage, and Strength from 12 Women of the Old Testament. And you will learn something about their culture, their time, and about those women whose names appear in Scripture that will, I think, help all of us uh, understand God's grace and mercy and uh, His um, his call a bit better. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we're also simulcasting with KGNW 820, The Word, back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm also sitting in for Live from Seattle. I'm continuing my conversation with Jill Eileen Smith, her latest book, She Walked Before Us, Grace, Courage, and Strength from 12 Women of the Old Testament. Now, you might be familiar with her works of fiction. This is something a little bit different, and I think you will find it very helpful in understanding women in Scripture that, as you pointed out earlier, um, Jill, God immortalized their names by putting them there, and they're there for a reason. Do you have a favorite among the um, among the 12 in this volume she walked before us that really ministered to your heart and taught you something about God's character? That is always so hard because I could name so many. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Hannah and I have a, a connection to wanting a child. You know, this for this child I prayed was my prayer back 30 plus years ago. Um, but Bathsheba embodies the need to forgive after all that happened to her. I mean, her grandfather turned against David because of what David did to her and she lost her husband and she lost a child and so much forgiveness was needed there, but they wouldn't have had four more kids if she never forgave him in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. um, and then there was Miriam. And I think this year, Miriam, which her novel comes out next March, by the way, but, um, called Miriam's song, but she taught me so much. That whole story taught me so much. I think I felt like Moses through her story taught me about God's holiness, but it also taught me about how much God really doesn't like it when his people complain against him or against his other servants because Miriam got in trouble for complaining against Moses on a choice he made that wasn't hers to make. And I thought, how often do I complain hmm. this year, especially? How often do we all complain? We get together with the first words out of our mouth. We're all crabbing about COVID or restrictions or anything, you know, to do with it. And we complain about um, things going on in the violence in the world. You name it. it, it it's been focusing, focused on America this year. But it's happening all over the world. People are hurting. People are losing jobs. They are going COVID crazy. And they are have every reason on earth to complain. And yet God says to his people, trust me, I don't want you to complain about this. This is not, complaining isn't what glorifies him. I think when we complain, we take away the we're we're showing the world we don't really trust the God mm-hmm. who has it all under his control. It's all in his hand. He knows exactly uh, what he's doing. He's possibly allowing all this because he's saying, look at me. Look, look up, look mm-hmm. up, not down. Don't look across. Don't look at humans. Don't look at leaders. They're not going to fix it. Only one can is him. 
And it could be one more way he uses in our life, which are many things he uses to draw us to want to put him first. And I, that's probably what I've been learning most this year based on Miriam's story in both books, as well as what just, just learning what through the scripture of that whole very, there's a lot of page time for Moses and Aaron and Miriam. I mean, Miriam doesn't get a lot, but because of Moses, she gets a lot. Because she's there, you know, she's there. Yeah. She's, and so you just, there's just so much. You wonder, what what was she thinking? What was her life like? What, you know, did she feel when Moses was called of God to go higher with God, in a sense, up on the mountain when she couldn't follow, even though God spoke to her as a prophetess? So I just, there's a lot to explore. And I guess she would be my favorite right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I like all of them. Well, these I mean, current circumstances certainly do expose what we trust in, what our interior life is like. And we would do mm-hmm. well to learn from Miriam uh, to focus our attention and our trust in God, because the world is watching. How are believers responding to this set of circumstances that differs mm-hmm. from the rest of the world? And we have mm-hmm. a tremendous opportunity to shine if we're willing. One of the other characters, and I'm sure I'm not going to pronounce her name correctly, so feel free to correct <laughs> me, uh, mm-hmm. Penina. Um, and I, the chapter is titled, When Hurt and Hate Are All You Feel. There's been a lot of animosity in our culture right now. Talk a little bit about her story and what we can learn from her. Well, I don't know how you pronounce it either. I call her Panina, <laughs> but it could be Panina, so we'll go with either one. <laughs> um, I don't, I, I only one that was easy to figure out was some of the ones that you can see in the transliterated Hebrew, but in that one I hadn't looked her up. But anyway, Panina was a sister wife to Hannah. And so she married Hannah's husband probably after Hannah couldn't have children. And gave him all kinds of children. But the Bible tells us that she constantly terrorized, taunted, made fun of Hannah, her sister wife, because she just kind of flaunted her kids before because she didn't have her husband's love. Hannah had Elkanah's love, not Penina. He only, she was basically just a surrogate wife. You know, and as far as he was concerned, there, there's nothing in scripture that says Elkanah loved Peninnah. So when I think when you're looking at her, her bitterness, she's, she's lashing out. She's, um, she's just an angry woman because she doesn't feel loved. And I think, I mean, sometimes we can just be that awful of a person with no reason, but usually there's reasons behind our actions. And I look at this, when I, when I see things like the violence and the hatred that's going on around the world, the, well, especially our country, mm-hmm. um, but all over the world, I mean, we've had it with terrorism now for years. And I mean, it goes back to Cain and Abel, if you really want to get down yeah. to it. But um, the, I think that, when hurt and hate are all you feel, you better look inward and find out why. Why are you so bitter and angry? And I have had people in my life that they can't even see their own bitterness 
but you can, it's so obvious in the way they treat you or talk to you or talk about other people around you. And you're like, can't you see that this is hurting you more than it's even hurting? Well, it's hurting everybody, but it's really hurting you because if you can't forgive, and I have been told by people that they can't forgive certain things um, or they just can't plain forgive at all. You, it, you're not doing it for the person who hurt you. You're doing it for yourself. And because God said you should, if you don't mm-hmm. forgive, he doesn't forgive us. And when we don't have a culture that can come together in understanding and forgiveness and forget going back and digging up all the old stuff that is past, it, you know, generation upon generation past, we're not even talking about like last year. If, if it's that old, then let's move beyond it and go forward. I mean, in Naomi's case, which is switching to a different woman, sorry about that, but no, no, fine. She moved, she moved away from where God wanted them to be in Israel. She let her husband said, Nope, it's there's a famine here. Let's go to Moab. She lost her whole family. It wasn't her fault. She had to go where he led, but before she could go forward, she had to go back. She had to go back to Bethlehem, find that hope that she left behind, and then God gave her even more. Even though she had lost so much, he rewarded her and blessed her in the end. And I feel like as a country, if we don't get back to a place where we stop pointing the finger at everyone but ourselves, we are not um, going to be able to ever get past things like the cancel culture and the um, Naomi went back and made things right. I don't think Penina ever did. I don't know that for sure. In the novel I wrote about Hannah, I had her finally come to a place where she and Hannah could get along when Hannah started having children and And there could be forgiveness because that's the kind of books I write. Forgiveness is my theme. Reconciliation is my theme. Trust in God is my theme. Those are all my themes. They come in through every book, whether I want them to or not, because (laughs) I think they're part of the human story. They're part of every story. And if we live in this culture and we don't get to that place where we can reconcile, we can forgive, we can get past it, and we can say, okay, you believe this way and I believe this way and you voted for that person and I voted for this person. You think this history is this way. I think it's that way. If we can't come together and say, wait a minute, pause. This isn't what's really the most important thing. And if it is important, then let's look at it one piece at a time and try to find a way to be at peace with all men because God called the church to be peacemakers. And if we can't, be the peacemakers who will. That's and right. I also that's right. feel that's another part of our job in this COVID climate is to rather than crab and complain, which I did at the beginning and I'm trying not to do, but to look for ways to find peace. And if people won't be peaceable back to you, you can't do anything, you know, to make them. You can't force peace upon people, but the church can exemplify it. The church can show it 
among each other, if we can't get along with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we really have a problem. There's little hope for the rest of the culture. (laughs) I know, because we really need to be praying for the rest of the culture and being, you know, what would Jesus do? I know that's an old saying, and nobody wears those bracelets anymore, but it's still the truth. I mean, we need to act in the way he did toward people, and he came to save the world, not to condemn it. He will come back and judge one day, but this day is, that is not this day. We have to present the good news that he came to seek and save the lost, and we're all lost. We're all broken. We all need him. And if anything shows us that we're not in control, it's this year. Mm. We are not in control. We certainly are not. Well, we are out of time, and we can't control that, but the book is titled She Walked Before Us, Grace, Courage, and Strength from 12 Women of the Old Testament. Jill Eileen Smith, I appreciate the book, and I appreciate your taking the time to talk with us here today. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're also listening to KGNW 820 The Word. We'll be back with news traffic in just a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, skepticism emerged on Monday as the Supreme Court heard some oral arguments on a case that's going to determine whether the president has the authority to exclude undocumented immigrants from the population figures used to determine house apportionment and federal funding to states. Now, the court appeared wary of approving any broad exclusion of uh, undocumented immigrants, but wasn't ready to throw its weight behind the plaintiffs either. Several justices questioned whether New York, the ACLU, and other groups that opposed the plan had sufficient standing to bring the case before the court before it was clear how exactly states would be affected, if at all. Career experts at the Census Bureau confirmed with me that they still don't know even roughly how many illegal aliens they will be able to identify, let alone how their number and geographic concentration may affect uh, apportionment, says Jeffrey Wall, the acting U.S. Solicitor General. Well, the 14th Amendment uh, states that representatives shall be apportioned among the several states according to their respective numbers, uh, counting the whole number of persons in each state, end quote. Well, generally, that has been understood to include anyone who lives in a state regardless of their legal status. Well, if an undocumented person has been in the country for, say, 20 years, even if illegally, why would such a person not have a settled residence? Well, that's what Amy Coney Barrett, the newest justice, asked. Well, the effect of the president's memorandum will be determined by categories of undocumented immigrants the Census Bureau can distinguish and exclude. If the Bureau can only exclude those who are in immigration and customs enforcement detention camps, for example, apportionment and fund allocation may not be affected at all. But uh, if they uh, use other metrics, it could have a significant impact on apportionment. So arguments were heard and the decision is pending. Meanwhile, Senator Chuck Schumer demanded on Monday that the Senate should begin confirmation hearings for Joe Biden's cabinet before Inauguration Day. On the Senate floor, the Democratic leader praised those individuals announced thus far by the mainstream media's applauded incoming Biden-Harris administration and called on the Senate to begin confirmation hearings after the January 5th Georgia Senate runoff elections. As president-elect, Biden prepares to assume office on the 20th of January. He's beginning to announce a slate of qualified, experienced public servants who he intends to nominate to his cabinet or other key administrative positions. He prefaced his public statement naming Biden's core economic team 
led by Treasury nominee Janet Yellen. Well, Schumer argued that the Assembly clearly has the experience, the knowledge, the prowess to meet the seriousness of this moment. Well, he went on to say in the midst of this once in a century crisis, it's imperative that the next administration can count on the Senate to confirm its cabinet without delay. So he's suggesting that it be done before um, Mr. Biden is actually seated as president. Schumer claimed that uh, the early days of the Trump presidency were defined by high-level appointments of individuals who were manifestly unqualified. Uh, Already, Republicans are twisting themselves into pretzels, he went on to say, to explain their opposition, stating that he fully expects to see some crocodile tears spilled on the other side of the aisle over the president-elect's cabinet nominees. Well, Schumer concluded the American people cannot wait to have its government working at full force to keep them safe, defeat the virus, and get our economy back on track. Uh, One American network, um, uh, uh, Jack... Uh, Probeic, he said, uh, called Schumer's declared plan an unconstitutional coup on Twitter. Well, we only have one president at a time, and Joe Biden isn't the president until Inauguration Day. That's January the 20th. Meanwhile, a group of newly elected Republican House members, including former NFL player Burgess Owens, has banded together to create a freedom force to oppose New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez squad. Well, this group will give a contrast to the hard left, Owens said. You won the House race in Utah this month. Um, we have freedom force versus squad. Well, the squad refers to the four hard left Democratic representatives led by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a self-described Democratic socialist, and her allies, Representative Ilhan Omar, um, Ayanna Presley and Rashida Tlaib. They won their House seats in 2018, won re-election this year. And there are a couple of others who are likely to join the squad if they succeed. Well, Owen said the Freedom Force, made up of women and people of color, will protect small business owners. Business ownership is the foundation of our freedom. It's where our middle class comes from, the former NFL player said. Well, the group reportedly includes at least eight Republican House members, Representative-elect Nicole Malatiokas, uh, Michelle Steele, Stephanie Bice, Victoria Victoria Spratz, uh, Carlos Jimenez, Maria Alvarez Salazar, Byron Donalds, and Owens. Uh, We have different cultures, backgrounds, colors, but what we have in common is that we have a love for our country, and we're going to make sure we stay free. Again, they're calling themselves the Freedom Force. Well, Governor Jay Inslee introduced Washington State's newest tool in the fight against coronavirus during a press conference uh, yesterday afternoon. Washington uh, Notify can be uh, added to residents' smartphones. It's called WA Notify, uh, who will then be alerted if they spent time near anyone, uh, another user who later tests positive for COVID-19. In other words, contact tracing. It's particularly innovative because it will alert people without ever having to share personal information, the governor said. He said it's um, simple and Anonymous exposure notification tool, which will help curb the rising number of infections. WA Notify or WA Notify uses technology developed by Google and Apple that works without collecting or revealing any location or personal data. Secure, private, and anonymous exposure notification technology is an important tool for Washington, the Governor Inslee said. We've uh, deployed WA Notify in 29 languages, so as many Washington residents as possible can protect themselves, their loved ones, and their communities. I encourage everyone to start using WA Notify today so we can continue to work together 
to contain this virus. Meanwhile, here in Oregon, the state's retooled COVID-19 restrictions were set to take off Thursday. A statewide freeze announced by the governor expires Wednesday. That's tomorrow. It's In its place, state officials will implement new rules that enforce closures and restrictions on a county-by-county basis. Well, the new framework comes as the state's coronavirus death toll has increased. More than 900 lives were lost as of Sunday, with nine new deaths and 1,599 new cases reported today. The new rules offer at least a little relief for restaurants. Um, The Solo Club and uh, B-Saws were shut up about six months, putting 80 staff out of work. The restaurants had reopened for indoor and outdoor dining, only to be shut down again a week and a half ago, the day before I dropped $5,000 on an outdoor tent. That was when the uh, governor changed the rules. Well, the new COVID-19 framework released last week by Governor Kate Brown allows them to serve diners once again with restrictions. Well, Seattle police made four arrests on Monday night during protests that broke out by Capitol Hill. Officers with the Seattle Police Department witnessed members of a protest damage at uh, Key Bank, uh, located in, um, on Broadway around 8 p.m. last night. The group then smashed windows at a Starbucks at the 800 block of 12th Avenue before officers moved in and made three initial arrests. One person was arrested for property damage, another two for obstructing a law enforcement officer. The group continued to march through the streets and caused more property damage to businesses and residences, the police department said in a press release. A fourth person was arrested for property damage before the group returned to Cal Anderson Park. And Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin plans to sign a new city budget that's going to reduce the police budget by 18 percent despite homicides reaching record highs not seen in a decade. Council members overwhelmingly voted last week to cut funds for police training and overtime and to eliminate dozens of vacant positions within the Seattle Police Department after months of contentious talks. Well, the reductions fall short of the 50 percent that local activists demanded with nationwide protests against police brutality and racial injustice. The council also decided to transfer parking enforcement officers, mental health workers and 911 dispatchers out of the police department. The budget also directs the city to invest up to $100 million for projects in communities of color and the hiring of 100 police recruits next year. Durkin's office did not immediately respond for additional questions, but the new budget comes as the city marked its 55th murder of the year on Monday with the fatal shooting of a man in the North Beacon Hill neighborhood. Another man was also shot in the same incident but survived. Well, as coronavirus cases um, spike across the U.S., local and state officials are implementing new lockdown restrictions, including those on schools. But students are failing more often than uh, during the coronavirus virtual learnings, according to a new study. We'll tell you about that. Students with two or more F marks increased 83 percent in the first quarter of the 2020-2021 school year. That when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show and live from Seattle. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show and live from Seattle, I'm Georgine Rice. While students are failing more often during coronavirus virtual learning, according to a new study, students with two or more F marks increased 83% in the first quarter of the 2020-2021 school year. Well, as the cases of coronavirus spike across the country, local and state officials are implementing new lockdowns and restrictions. And that, of course, has included schools. Some schools and states from Connecticut to California that switched from virtual learning in the spring to in-person or hybrid learning by autumn are moving back to online classes to 
as cases spike and it's taking its toll on students, parents and teachers. Well, according to a new study from Fairfax County, Virginia, Public Schools Office and Research and Strategic Improvement, they suggest that middle and high school students are seeing less academic success as a result of online learning. The uh, county schools remained closed and parents protested. Uh, they called to keep learning virtual during the uh, November 12th demonstration, according to local uh, media. Well, the percentage of students with two or more F marks, for example, increased 83% from 6 to 11% in the first quarter of the school year compared to the first quarter of last year. Students with disabilities and non-English speakers experienced the largest increase in F marks. Students at the middle school level had a notable increase in the percentage of failures, while at the high school level, the increase also existed but was considerably smaller, according to the study. Well, the uh, trend of uh, more failing uh, marks is concerning across the board because it's especially concerning for the groups that show the biggest unpredicted increases in receiving multiple unsatisfactory marks, namely our English learner students and students with disabilities, the report says. Well, similar research conducted in California and Texas also found that students were failing more frequently as a result of virtual learning. A return to virtual learning will also be hard on working parents who've been uh, forced to change schedules and seek help looking after their children as they learn from remote locations. Parents have organized protests to keep schools open. Thus far, they've been less successful than parents had hoped. Meanwhile, you may have missed it over the Thanksgiving weekend, but the country's public health establishment admitted it has uh, tortured your children for eight months for no apparent reason. Sixty million American children uh, have been languishing in their rooms since spring, sitting in front of screens, learning nothing, isolated from human contact. Well, that's a bit of an exaggeration. Some have learned something, in many cases driven to mental illness, they're telling us, and there was no reason for any of it. The experts were wrong. They had no idea what they were doing. But the most amazing part is that they uh, they knew they were wrong when they did it. But they kept saying to uh, keep the schools closed, even as American children began uh, to suffer. Well, on Sunday, New York City officials all but admitted this when they announced the reopening of elementary schools fewer than two weeks after they were closed. From a medical standpoint, nothing has changed. New York didn't get an early shipment of Pfizer vaccine. There wasn't some groundbreaking new research paper that revolutionized our understanding of the coronavirus. Parents had simply had enough, and they forced the mayor to admit the obvious. This virus is not a threat to children. Now, the teachers and others who oversee is another matter, but As de Blasio put it, in that weird euphemistic way that people speak, we know that the health realities for the youngest kids are the most favorable. I'll give you a moment to try to decipher that. Um, We have known for a long time, we knew it when de Blasio shut the schools down, and Dr. Anthony Fauci knew it too, though he didn't say anything about it until this past Sunday. Here's a quote from Fauci. Close the bars and keep the schools open is what we really say. Obviously, you don't have one size fits all. But as I said in the past, the default position should be to try as best as possible within reason to keep the children in school or to get them back to school. If you look at the data, the spread among children and from children is not uh, really very big at all. Not like one uh, would have suspected. Why is this just now occurring to Tony Fauci? One might uh, ask. Um, Well, you can look at the data. Yes, it is. And yes, uh, yet somehow he never thought to to inform the general public. So apparently uh, he and others are now admitting that it's in the best interest of children to return to schools. Now, will that have an impact across the country? It's doubtful. The teachers unions very strongly oppose the idea for the sake of their own health. Um, 
But again, the tide seems to be turning, at least in what some are suggesting is in the best interest of children and a reflection of the uh, risk that is uh, posed to children when they gather for the purposes of education. Cal Thomas points out that the government assault on faith and conscience is far from over. He points out that last week's Thanksgiving gift to believers from the Supreme Court may be only a temporary reprieve. And he writes this, in totalitarian societies, governments suppress the church and religious worship. That's because dictators believe citizens should worship them as the highest authority and not the higher authority, which they view as a threat to their power and position. In the United States, the threat of religious liberty has been under siege for some time. Last week's Thanksgiving gift to believers from the Supreme Court may be only a temporary reprieve from the government's assault on faith and conscience. The narrow 5-4 ruling serves as a warning uh, to the threat and that it's not over. The court majority ruled that Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York overstepped his authority and the Constitution when he arbitrarily declared that during the COVID pandemic, worship services must be limited to a number he created out of whole cloth. What, it, what is it that causes so many Americans to place their faith in government over faith in God or even faith in themselves? False gods of wood, iron, bronze, and gold could not answer the prayers of ancient people. So why, when governments fail to answer the prayers of so many today, do people continue to put their faith in it? Again, quoting Cal Thomas, when government sets itself up as the ultimate authority on all things, including the right to gather and worship freely, other liberties can quickly be at risk. In the First Amendment, it's to be challenged even watered down when it comes to faith and practice, why not impose stricter controls on speech and the press as it's uh, done in totalitarian states? Once the principle that government endows rights is established, it's a very short step for government to take um, them away as well. In China and elsewhere around the globe, dictators view God as a challenge to their rule. They demand total fealty or are those who seek to go over their heads with appeals to heaven must be arrested, jailed, and in some instances murdered that the almighty state may be preserved. One of the founding principles that brought pilgrims from England to America was the freedom to worship God as their conscience dictated. The Constitution guarantees that right. In more recent years, the term separation between church and state penned by Thomas Jefferson in a private letter to a friend has come to mean the right of the government to define the meaning of church, restricting the practice of faith to one hour on Sunday morning, and in the case of Governor Cuomo and some other governors and mayors, dictating how many people can gather to worship someone other than themselves. A Wall Street Journal editorial commenting on the court's decision got it right. When they wrote the courts, uh, the court explains that New York's order treats houses of worship more harshly than what Governor Cuomo uh, considers essential business. Those include liquor stores, bike shops, acupuncturists, lawyers, accountants, and more. Sermons I have heard over the years have noted that in the eyes of God, when one has broken one of the Ten Commandments, one has broken them all. Breaking one law, they have noted, defines one as a lawbreaker. It's a good analogy when considering our liberties. If one is threatened, all are potentially at risk. President-elect Joe Biden has promised to name more liberal judges to federal benches. If he succeeds, expecting more challenges to religious, or rather expect more challenges to religious freedom and other constitutional rights, including the right to life and the right to keep and bear arms. It is a major reason why the runoff election in Georgia next month to reelect two Republicans or two Democrats um, determining the Senate majority uh, would determine whether or not uh, challenges by the new administration can be blocked, not just to religious liberty, but to other freedoms as well. 
It's a story well worth following. Well, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to hear from Wes Walterman from the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. I know many of us have enjoyed the singing Christmas tree year after year, but there's a way for you to enjoy it in 2020 as well. That's coming up in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show and live from Seattle. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I had a great Thanksgiving with my husband and my brother and a couple of his kids, my mom who's turning 90 in a couple of weeks. But the day after Thanksgiving, there was something that was just a little off. Well, as I gave it some thought, I realized I should be at the Keller Auditorium with the best choir the Portland metro area has ever produced, the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. But the pandemic, like so many other things, made it impossible for us to gather as has been the custom. But don't despair. Joining me now is Wes Walterman to tell you about the Singing Christmas Tree Streaming Spectacular, which is a plan B for this uh, challenging season. Wes, welcome. Oh, thank you. It's so good to be with you today. Well, it's good to talk to you and to hear your voice. I, I wish you and I were at the Keller Auditorium and you were directing me in the choir, but um, I'm excited that there is an alternative this time around for people who have relied on the Portland Singing Christmas Tree to kick off their Christmas season, something we've never done before. Tell us about the uh, streaming spectacular. Yeah, you know, it all began in the middle of the summer. Uh, we were still planning on um, hopefully the Keller opening up in the fall. So we're still planning a show even mm-hmm. uh, as far as August comes. And um, and then so then we got word that, you know, the Keller would be closed through the end of the year and possibly beyond. So then we, we were like, well, what will we do? Um, so we had a little powwow for a few minutes. And we decided, you know, let's take the best, our favorites from the last three years, combine them all. And uh, let's put this out to our audience. And those who don't live in Portland anymore, maybe they're we got a couple Choir members move move away to Tennessee and Texas, and so they can be part of this show this year. But let's put it online and stream it, and uh, along with some uh, some different stories from our producer and from a couple of the directors, and uh, from some of our soloists, some behind the scenes kind of looks at the tree that people don't usually ever hear about. Well, we're talking about eighty minutes of programming to put our um, our audience into the Christmas spirit. And it's only going to cost $25 plus service fees, which means you can invite as many people into your household as, well, <laughs> you're permitted to enjoy this uh, as it streams from the 15th of December through January 1st. Now, how do they connect with the uh, the streaming spectacular? What's the way to, to make sure that the family can once again be a part of the Singing Christmas Tree tradition? Yeah, they can go to our website, singingchristmastree.org, and it's super easy. You'll see buy tickets now for this year's show. Click on that, and then it takes you through the process of purchasing tickets and with a small fee at, at the end of that as well. But, you know, once, once you purchase this, you're good to watch it. If you want to watch it several times during those two week, that two-week period, you're welcome to do that without having to repurchase a ticket. And then there's also a spot where if you want to donate a little bit more uh, to help uh, the cause of the Portland Scene Christmas Tree uh, stay alive for another year, and, and we all anticipate being back live at the Keller next next year. So this really helps us get through, uh, you know, 2020 and, and what everyone's kind of been facing this year and, and the uncertainties. And so this uh, this will definitely help us get get to the other side. Yeah, 58 years. Uh, this has been a holiday tradition in the Portland metro area. The Portland Singing Christmas Tree has never missed. Uh, a performance in those 58 years. And this year 
will not be the exception because there is an opportunity to enjoy the great music. Katie Harmon will be featured. Timothy Greenwich will be featured and so many others. The Children's Choir, the Jefferson Dancers, the things that you've come to expect with the Portland Singing Christmas Tree will all be presented. And you can enjoy that from the comfort of your own home. I'm going to get my fix because I, I miss my family in the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. And I know a lot of other people are really going to miss being in the Keller Auditorium, watching that curtain open. And this is definitely the next best thing spectacular is the right word to use to describe it i think it'll be one of our best years ever actually it, it's just going to allow so many other people to be able to view our show and uh and then those who view the show they'll be so excited they're gonna be like oh you know who needs to hear this or see this and they'll pass the word on and it'll just spread over the over that two-week period and uh, we'll have so many new people seeing our show for the first time yeah uh, I, I just think it's gonna be a win-win and it and it gets the last three years some of our favorites you know, because we do a, we'll do a couple songs for a couple of years, and then we put it we put it on the back shelf when we do some new stuff. But some of those older songs are some of our favorites, and so yeah. the audience this year is going to be able to view that and to and to sense that and to feel that. And uh, so it it will be it'll be a wonderful spectacular. You know, it's interesting because I talk to so many people every year who plan to come to the Singing Christmas Tree, and maybe uh, that first week, uh, weekend after Thanksgiving, they have forgotten. And then by the time we have our conversation, the tree is, is finished. This is the opportunity for folks who've always wanted to go to the Portland Singing Christmas Tree to see it for the first time. And for those who have made this a family tradition for many years, it's an opportunity to continue that tradition. And so we want to encourage you uh, to take advantage of this streaming spectacular. You can enjoy the show from the uh, warmth and comfort of your own home. Invite others into your household if socially distance permits that as well. And you're going to enjoy uh, footage from past year's performances and some history of the tree. There's going to be a special message from uh, Santa Claus. And you get to hear from the directors and soloists. In fact, you might hear a story or two of some of the things that go on behind the scenes that you don't have an opportunity to see or hear from the front that will put a smile on your face and might even make you laugh a little bit. Because uh, being a part of the tree is such a, a fun uh, event for your neighbors uh, who make up this uh, fantastic choir uh, and dancers and principals and, and all of that. So I'm excited that uh, this is an option for folks in 2020 because we all need a little bit of uh, cheer in this year that has uh, been really short on on cheer, joy, peace, and hope. You know, uh, I'm looking forward to that as, as well, but uh, you were mentioning some of the, the back scenes and, you know, um, interviews. So I was actually in the studio watching the interview with our producer, Greg Tamlin, and the stories he told within a, a three or four minute spectrum, I was laughing uncontrollably, but I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't burst out and laugh. I was just, I had to leave the room actually. And so these are, these are pieces that no one's ever heard of. You know, you have to be behind the scenes of the same Christmas tree to realize what exactly happened uh, away from the audience. And so you're going to get a glimpse of that, of course. Uh, with with these interviews and it's I just you know it, it's going to be a treat for everybody. Yeah, it really is. Well, tickets are on sale now at singingchristmastree.org. Um, and it's just $25 for streaming access plus service fees. And again, the show is going to include favorite performances from past years, some backstage stories, a visit from Santa Claus, and uh, just everything you have come to expect from the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. And for those of you who have only heard the rumor of Portland Singing Christmas Tree, I guarantee you're going to be amazed at what your neighbors are able to pull off every year at the Keller Auditorium as it's brought in full display uh, for this uh, 2020 season. Again, I'm so grateful 
uh, that the tree continues. And I'm really looking forward to 2021 um, or excuse me, 2022, when uh, Lord willing, we're all back in the Keller Auditorium. But for this year, this is a great way uh, to keep that tradition alive. It is. And um, I should also note that a lot of energy and work and time has gone into this year's production, just putting everything together and pulling the pieces out of the last three years uh, so that our audience will enjoy it. Once they push play uh, from the, the curtain opening on their screen in their living mm-hmm. rooms or wherever they're going to view this from, it'll be a wonderful show for those 80 to 90 minutes. Um, and so a lot of things have happened behind the scenes that, you know, people just don't see, but it's definitely worth the $25 viewing uh viewing price and so we're just so grateful for people to be able to come alongside us for this year 58 even though we can't be live on a stage in front of them but at least we'll be in their homes with them celebrating uh, the birth of our lord and bringing peace and hope and love and joy to each household Absolutely. Well, the tradition continues with Portland Singing Christmas Tree streaming spectacular. Once again, you can go to singingchristmastree.org or for additional information, you can call 503-557-8733. Again, that's 503-557-8733. Well, Wes, thank you and Greg and all of the others who have put this uh, spectacular program together so that we can enjoy some time with the Singing Christmas Tree. Thank you for letting us share this with your audience. Absolutely. Wes Walterman is the director of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, and we're looking forward to seeing him once again in this Portland Singing Christmas Tree streaming spectacular. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a new survey points out that U.S. voters now regard each other as a bigger enemy than Russia or North Korea and just as dangerous as China. This is a reference to fellow Americans. Well, the latest Rasmussen Reports National Telephone and Online Survey found that 24% of likely U.S. voters think Biden voters are America's biggest enemy as 2020 draws to a close. And that same number, 24%, see China as enemy number one. Nearly as many, or 22%, regard Trump voters as the biggest enemy, while 10% view Russia and 7% North Korea as the largest threat to the United States. 11% are more wary of something else. Well, a deeper dive finds that 37% of Republicans feel Biden voters are the biggest enemy, just edging the 34% who feel that way about China. 35% of Democrats think Trump voters are the biggest threat far and above the danger posed by all of the others. Now, voters not affiliated with either major political party, rate China, Biden, Uh, uh, rate China, rather, Biden voters and Trump voters, all equal (laughs) threats. This is how we have come to view one another in this highly politicized culture that we find ourselves in, that we see one another as the greatest threat to one another. Now, voters continue to see a more divided America after four years of the Trump presidency. And while half of voters place the blame on Trump's or at Trump's feet, nearly as many Uh, Don't see it getting any better if Joe Biden moves into the White House. Men uh, put China in first place, followed by Biden voters. Women rate Biden and Trump voters equally as the uh, the top threat. Middle-aged voters are more wary of Biden voters than Trump voters. And those under 40 and seniors see the two as about the same. For whites, China and Biden voters uh, run neck and neck as America's biggest enemy. 
For African-Americans, much more concerned about Trump voters, while other minority voters rate China and voters for the two major party presidential candidates as nearly equal dangers. We look at one another, look to our leaders as the greatest danger we face. Now, just over half or 51 percent of voters who strongly approve of the job Trump is doing as president see Biden voters as the biggest enemy. And among those who strongly disapprove of Trump's job performance, about 45 percent view Trump voters that way. More voters than ever consider China an enemy and think the Asian giant should pick up the tab for at least some of the global costs of the coronavirus. So at least the Americans agree on that point. But only 32 percent of all voters now think that the country is headed in the right direction. The latest findings continue the downward trend since just before Election Day, when 41 percent said America was headed in the right direction. This is the landscape in which believers are called to reflect the love of Christ into a culture. Now, the temptation, I think, for all of us is to simply reflect the culture and its standing on these issues. And yet, even if we view others around us as enemies, we are told in Scripture that we're required to even love our enemies. Well, that may be a painful and difficult, even impossible thing to do, unless, of course, you are filled with the Holy Spirit and you take God's word seriously. What evidence is there that God is at work in the world? Well, look to his people and whether or not they're extending love even to those who would identify as their enemies. And that is the challenge for us. We need, as followers of Jesus, to be agile. We need to be led by the Spirit and prepared to do battle on our knees and to speak truth boldly in love. That is our challenge during the pandemic, and it's my belief that God is not only preparing us and exposing perhaps our interior life through these months of quarantine, showing us more about ourselves and what we really value, but I believe he's also preparing us for something, some things that are, are to come, some challenges that we may face that are unrelated to this pandemic. This is a season in which we have an opportunity to learn perhaps more about where we stand in terms of our walk of faith and whether or not we are prepared Uh, to be led by his spirit and to do battle on our knees and to speak the truth boldly. Well, these are, from my perspective, the best of times and they are the worst of times, but always a great adventure as the kingdom of God advances. And what a, a tremendous opportunity we have to grow in our faith, to grow in our um, understanding of who God is, to recognize his grace and his provision uh, for everyone who calls upon his name to learn not to fear in the midst of circumstances that cry out for a fearful response. That's where we find ourselves in 2020, in the middle of a pandemic that they tell us may not uh, lift until sometime into the middle of next year. It might be spring or summer of 2021. It's hard to imagine that I'll be sitting at this desk in my husband's office in the spring of 2021 doing a radio show (laughs) Uh, from from this location, but that's entirely possible. It's difficult to imagine that some of our churches will not meet in the facility together until some point in the distant future, but that may in fact be the future. Churches respond differently uh, to what they are allowed to do. Some churches have technical savvy that makes this transition relatively easy. Others don't have the uh, the technology or the congregants don't have access Uh, in the way that others do. So we're trying to navigate this as well as we can to honor God 
and to submit to the governing authorities insofar as they do not conflict with uh, God's command on his people. But this is the season that God has called us to. Some of us wish we could relive uh, uh, 2019. Some of us wish we could fast forward to 2021 when this is just a faint memory. But God has us right here, right now for a purpose. And our challenge is to glean everything he wants to teach us in the middle of it so that we emerge ready for the next challenge. I was, uh, my attention was drawn to a quote from Corey Tenboom, who is one of the women of faith I have admired the most over the course of my Christian life. If you've not heard her or had the opportunity to read her writing, she, of course, was uh, a Dutch a woman whose family hid Jews during World War II and she and her family found themselves in concentration camp as a result of their protection of uh, Jews they hid in their homes. Uh, she said this about worry. Worry is carrying tomorrow's load with today's strength, carrying two days at once. It's moving into tomorrow ahead of time. Worry doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. Today, God has given us life and breath. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us his word. And we are charged with choosing not to be guided by fear because that's not the spirit that he's given to us, but a sound mind. So don't carry tomorrow's load with today's strength. Don't carry two days at once, moving into tomorrow ahead of time. It doesn't empty tomorrow of its woes. It empties today of its strength. So let's move forward in faith and the strength that he has given for today. I want to thank James Blinn for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night and join us tomorrow when uh, we will be joined by John Chastine. He's the author of Half the Battle, Healing Your Hidden Hurts. The book is published by Gateway Press. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.